This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, was made possible by Global Blood Therapeutics and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Visit gbt.com to learn more. What's up, sickle cell warriors? It's Dr. Z. And Dr. C. Here with another episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast. Dr. C. I've been trying to get myself to um, build up the courage to get this guest onto our podcast to help to kind of find time in her schedule to make this happen. I'm glad we were able to make this happen. Me too. Um, this is a big one. I mean, I, I love all of our uh, cheat code guests and, and I love doing uh, all the different kinds of episodes, but I particularly love these legacy epi- episodes where we talk to people who've had such a huge impact on the field. And this one's really personal because this is our, our friend, our colleague, our mentor, Dr. Ingrid Sarnayek, who you know w- works with us here in Detroit and, and has been steadfast sickle cell provider here in Detroit for decades and, and really put the center in a great place for us to take over. Yeah, no, absolutely. I feel an over, overwhelming amount of debt and gratitude to, to her for really building the place that we work over these last 30 years. And and I, I think, you know, as you'll hear in the interview, she's an impressive clinician and scientist, but also, you know, has two wonderful kids who are a PEDS ICU doctor and a surgeon, and she's an outstanding athlete and, um, you know, really gives back to the community. Um, really, the Sarnaik family have... Everything at our hospital is called Sarnayek because they've donated so much. Um, so re- really uh, wonderful to have uh, found time to have her on. All right. So this, Warriors, this is uh, a legacy pod. Uh, this is a legacy episode. And as such, we are going to spend time talking to our guests today. We're going to skip over some of the regularly occurring segment segments and just focus on talking to Dr. Sarnayek and let you guys get a glimpse into her life, who she is, and what she's sort of accomplished over these last several decades. We hope you enjoy this one. We spent some time doing a Detroit Legacy podcast, but it felt incomplete. We were missing one of the biggest pieces. For sure, for sure, because we stand on the shoulders of the people who have built the path that we walk on, right? And, and one of those people was missing from that Detroit podcast that we did. So, so I'm glad we were able to get this on the books and spend some time talking with Dr. Sharada Sarnaik, a.k.a. Ingrid Sarnaik. Dr. Sarnaik, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you very much. This is really uh, sounds like a very important kind of a project to really go back and see where we started, like where we were, and then where we're going to, where we are now, and where we will be in the future. So, uh, this is awesome. Well, thank thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. But let let's let's dive in a little bit into into you, into your life, into who you are, how you got into this. Where did the story of sickle cell start? And even before that, tell us a little bit about growing up. How did you always know you were going to be a doctor? I kind of, yes, almost very early in my life said I was going to be a doctor and no one knew that it was going to really transpire actually in, in way back when in India, you know. So um went to medical school. I got interested quite early actually in hematology and uh, sickle cell story did not start until I got to Detroit. 
you know, it was really very fascinating to see how difficult it was for children, especially who had this disease, how very difficult it was, because there was absolutely nothing. There was nothing until 1977 or 78. And I think the true pioneer was Dr. Charles Witten. And I got interested mainly because of him. He was my mentor and my, uh, you know, my really, he really pushed me into it sort of thing. You're going to do this, Ingrid. You're going to do this. <laughs> That's all he had to say. I was going to say, tell us a little bit about those first interactions that you had with him, those first memorable interactions. I mean, tell us how that conversation went and how he sort of mentored you and peer pressured you into the space. My fondest memory was very early. We had patients who had gallstones, right? Gallstones. And we were writing this manuscript about gallstones very, very early. And strangely, he was in the hospital with his cholecystectomy, going to have or just had it. And he paged me and had me come over <laughs> on his hospital bed post-op day one. And he said, you know, you got to do this, that and that, you know, and um, it was really something else. I had to come to his bedside with all the data that we had on our gallbladder paper. And, uh, he, you know, he went through all of it and made changes and said, oh, this statistic has to be changed. I mean, this was post-op day one for him, right? <laughs> and that's what... That's the role model he was. That's the role model Dr. Witten was. And um, This was one of the first papers describing the incidence of gallstones in kids with sickle cell. This is like pediatrics, in, in published in pediatrics in like 1980. Yes. And we had an age distribution and the youngest child, well, we were doing gall, we were doing echoes on everybody, echoes of the abdomen, ultrasounds of the abdomen, everybody that came in through the door. I don't know quite how we paid for it, but <laughs> but we did them. And the youngest patient with gallstones was a four-year-old, believe it or not. Wow. And I was just stunned to to see that, you know, how early gallstones start in, in sickle cell disease. So that was really a natural history study of uh, the first one. You're right, Mike, that was published on how early these gallstones are and how long they stay asymptomatic, too. I'm curious. I'd like to take even a step back further. So... You grew up in Goa, is that right? Yes, in Goa, in in uh, India, yeah. Are there sickle cell patients in Goa? No, not there really. no sickle cell patients in Goa. In fact, the only place that in India that had some patients was uh, Bombay, Mumbai. And I think they must have been there, but we just didn't recognize it. Med school was in Bombay. In Bombay, yes. Then finished med school and came over to, did a residency there too for a, a year or two in Bombay and then came Correct. to Detroit. What what prompted that? How did you pick Detroit out of everything? I think that uh, what prompted that is really strange because, see, I was, com I, I was coming at a very young age, you know, young girl coming to India. I didn't know a soul in, in, uh, from India to, to, uh, to the U.S. And my mother knew Dr. Ivan Silva. I don't know if you know Dr. Ivan Silva. He was a surgeon and he was from Goa, which is the same place I was from. So that made my mom feel very safe to send me here, <laughs> you know, because she knew someone that was here. So that's how I, that's how I basically landed in Detroit. Otherwise, who knows where I would have been. Tell, tell us a little bit about your first sort of thoughts, your first impressions when you get to Detroit uh, and you're, you're getting here for the first time from India. What are you experiencing? Talk about cultural shock. I mean, really, you know, uh, my earliest uh, memory was like uh, young girls, you know, about in their early 20s. They would get very embarrassed to say that they were 
um, you know, they were single and looking for someone, you know, like, and they had, the biggest cultural shock for me was they had children without being married. I mean, that was really, I was right off the boat, right? I mean, that does not what usually happens. And, um, but, but they really, I was impressed with how good they were taking care of kids. Their kids, they might've been very young and very immature, but they really took good care of them, of their kids. And uh, it was a very good, strong family support that they had. And so when, when did you figure out hematology? Quite early, actually. Uh, during my residency, I decided that that was something that I'd like to do. You know, I really liked looking at smears and I really liked everything about hematology. Basically, I did. And the sickle cell, you know, before we before we really had a well-organized program, right? Patients would come in general hematology clinic and they would say, oh, sickle cell disease, go to hematology clinic. And they would just be seen as part of the sickle, the program, the hematology program. There was no such thing as a sickle cell program. And um, Dr. Witten is the one that really started that. Uh, he hired three nurse practitioners before they would be seen by whoever's rotating through, you know, residents, uh, interns, fellows, and it would be, a, they'd see a different person every time. So he, he hired three nurse practitioners and they were in charge of the patients. And that made a huge difference to, to the care that they got because they saw the same nurse practitioners every time they came instead of someone rotating through. And uh, that was the start of the comprehensive sickle cell program there. And and then, so right out of fellowship, then you started doing sickle cell research um, with the cholelithiasis paper. And then, you know, one thing we've been really proud of here is really pioneering transfusions to prevent stroke and perioperative uh, complications. So those are some of your first publications looking at transfusions and um, what what prompted that? Was it something that you noticed in, in clinic or how did the idea come about? Yes, I think it became apparent that uh, that surgery and general anesthesia were not very safe for patients with sickle cell disease. And um, we found that if we transfused them beforehand and kept the sickle cell percentage at a certain level, and we just picked 30% because that's what, you know, individuals who have trade, they have no more than 30% S. So we figured that would be a safe uh, point, And it was, it was safe. And that, that became the standard of care then to transfuse preoperatively up to, uh, down to 30% S. And uh, then it became extremely safe and very few complications, you know, so that was then our, our practice across the country to do that. I mean, the other thing too, is we would look at the smears in those days and look at if we saw any filamentous sickle forms or not. And most of the time when you got the S level down to that level, you didn't see filamentous sickle cells. So that then became like, okay, this really makes sense now, physiologic sense. Rapid turnaround test. Correct, yes. Because SS cells died off and the donor cells stayed on longer, obviously. So So you obviously got to see a lot of evolution in the sickle cell landscape, of course, starting with transfusions, watching those become standard of care, the introduction of hydroxyurea. Walk us through the initial sort of, um, I guess, the the time when hydroxyurea was sort of starting to be discussed. 
tell us about that era and a little bit around how patients were reacting to conversations about a potentially new medication then. Yes, I, I think that what got patients really um, convinced that that's the way to go is there was nothing else available except blood transfusions and nobody liked blood transfusions. There were too many complications, design overload. But if you were going to be uh, safe, you would be transfused. And there were some patients who didn't exactly demand, but they really wanted to be on chronic transfusions for no good, no reason other than they had sickle cell. They didn't want to have pain. But I think that realizing that it's safe to even do general anesthesia with 30% S, people began to realize that all the complications of sickle cell can be managed safely with getting that transfused to that level. And um, it didn't take long to develop that data to see that that's what we need to do, you know. And then hydroxyurea, you know, I think it was just a happenstance that patients who were on hydroxyurea, they see that their fetal hemoglobin level went up and it could go up to a safe level. So then that became, of course, it was used in adults before with an MES, MES, MSH study. And that was really the landmark study for hydroxyurea, that that's what, that's what you could do with uh, sickle cell disease, put them on HU and, and get a very good S level. Uh, good high fetal level there. So. You know, I, I think when Dr. Z and I came into sickle cell, there was already this really mature community. There were a lot of um, trials that, you know, you, you had been a part of, SIT trial and Twitch and um, Switch and um, Baby Hug and all of these sort of really network of doctors. When did that start to form? Because I, I think in the 70s and 80s, it, it there weren't these comprehensive, uh, I guess there were the comprehensive networks in the early 80s, but there weren't uh, a lot of multi-center trials. And it, it seems like that's been a great thing in the sickle cell community to form these these networks of trials. Yes. Yes, Mike. Uh, because I think in the past, all we gave was care, right? I mean, education was huge, you know, genetic counseling, counseling about the disease, how to manage common complications. So we had this cadre of centers that had very well-organized hematologists who were taking care of sickle cell disease. And so when therapy became possible, it seemed like an easy transition to sort of use those populations to, to produce the data that we needed to show that this is useful to do. It started out with transfusions for stroke. That was probably the very first clinical trials that we did. And, uh, you know, because before that, I mean, you did get one stroke after another and after another, and there was no end to it. You know, it, it just seemed to uh, not be any anything that you could do for them except transfusions. I think it was Dr. Witten who realized that if you kept the S level down, they wouldn't have second strokes. And uh, in the beginning, we had, I still remember the patients, early patients that we had had recurrent episodes and they were wheelchair bound. They had lots of deficits. And then once we started to see that as soon as you get even a TIA, you put them on transfusions and they no longer had any deficits. That was just an eye opener for all of us, you know, then. And then we had the TCD and the non-invasive uh, imaging that you could pick them up even before they had any symptoms whatsoever. So that was quite a quite a big deal. That, that changed the landscape. That changed everything uh, about sickle cell disease and I don't know. For me, it just like just like Dr. Mike was saying earlier. For me, it's a it's a pride point to see 1979 
publication from Detroit, Michigan, talking about transfusions as a way to prevent strokes. It's just it's beautiful to see that and to know that that came out of here. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that is becoming clear to me as a younger physician uh, in the sickle cell space is just in the last five years of me taking care of sickle cell patients, I feel like I formed so much community and family amongst the patients. Over the duration of your career, you've probably gotten to see generations of families, right? You've probably gotten to see young patients grow up, become parents, and then have their kids. Tell us a little bit about that. Tell us a little bit about some memorable patients, families, the the community in Detroit that um, you've seen grow up with sickle cell disease and how that sort of impacted you through your life. You know, we were really, we are really still uh, big on genetic counseling, right? So, So we had a couple of patients and they were my patients, both of them. And of course, we did genetic counseling there. And this was boy, girl, right? And they decided to get married and they both had sickle cell disease. So I looked at them in the eye and I said, why are you doing this? You know, 100% of your kids are gonna have sickle cell. Dr. Sarnaik, this is very important to us, you know? I know, but this is very important that we have a child. So they went on and had a child with sickle cell disease. and. Fortunately, unfortunately, that child did quite well with milder disease. But that's the sort of thing, that's the sort of relationship that we had that I could speak to them so plainly that how could you do this? You know, and that just just now, you know, you just cannot, you cannot get that kind of stuff. You, know, you cannot make that story up like that. Uh, I, uh, I was doing some research for this episode, and usually I just get to use the internet and people's CVs, but I was able to call... Uh, Dr. Ashok Sarnayak, I said, you know, I'm, I'm looking for stuff I can't find on the CV. He, he said uh, a, a few things. One is that he said he was getting a little bit sick of going around the hospital and everybody asking him if he was the father of that Dr. Sarnayak in hematology. <laughs> <laughs> but he also told me a couple of stories about uh, one, one where you had given... Uh, intrathecal chemotherapy, a lumbar puncture chemotherapy to a patient, uh, and then two days later coached him on the soccer field. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty amazing, really, yeah. And, then he told and he was me a, a very good soccer player, too. I guess he couldn't miss the game then, because uh, even, even if he got chemo. And then he told me another story about you, you bring, bringing a patient out with, uh, with your boys out on the uh, Lake St. Clair on a boat and they were driving a boat really fast. And uh, so I, I think, you know, both of those speak to being a doctor, but also being, you know, a, a mentor for, for patients. So I, I loved both of those stories. Yeah, those were, those were special. They really, they really were special. Yeah. Those, those are such fantastic stories. That just brings such, uh, such a joy to me. So, you know, I, I think over the last few decades we've had a ton of really impressive studies in sickle cell multi-center studies and you've been a site pi on i think all of them um whether it's you know baby hug or vaccinations in in children or the stop trials or the switch and twitch and all of all of these studies that uh we've talked about on cheat codes you know you you were there doing them and i i curious i mean 
I've had a couple of experiences where you do you're part of something and it makes a difference to how we treat patients. But you've had a, just a long career of these, and can you speak to what it's like to be part of you know really groundbreaking trials over time? I mean, it's been pretty amazing. You know, it's been an amazing ride actually to to see this develop like that, and our center has been really unusual in the sense that we had a cadre of patients. And I tell you, I don't think, I don't believe we've had anyone, maybe we've had one or two who declined any study that we proposed to them because of the trust that they had in us and because it had to pass our test first before we could present it to our patients that it had to be good and it had to be safe and it had to be, you know, it had to be very valuable to do. It started from the transfusions and uh, preoperative transfusions to, to drugs, to medications. And um, so that's the reason why basically we were able to do that is because of this trust we built up. And I think the nurse practitioners played a huge role in this, you know, because although I saw everybody, they had their own cadre of patients, maybe about 50 to 75 that they interacted with every single time visit that they came and so there was a huge level of trust that was that was there and uh, we didn't have too many refuses at all with that so that's why that's how come we're involved in most of all all the studies i guess you know starting from penicillin to to uh, hydroxyurea and to uh, now you guys are doing the more re- more modern ones, you know, and uh, I don't I don't think we have anybody that says no to, to, to that for that reason. So we have a long I, track record. I feel like a lot of that is, like you said, these relationships with the patient, and it's, it's really built on trust. And I, I think some of that has to do with, um, I don't know if it's unique, but it's not common. Our center is also the primary care center for the patients. So we're their pediatrician's office, and we have some pediatricians and, and nurse practitioners who work with us. And we're where you go if you have an ear infection and where you go for your sickle cell visits. When and how did that start here? I think that was really the influence of Dr. Witten. You know, he didn't see our patients having time to go to the general pediatrician to come to us. So we did everything, school physicals, hearing tests, any kind of uh, school issues, so they came, they are used to one-stop shopping and that made a big difference in the care we were able to give and the, and the degree of participation we were able to have because they just came here. They didn't know any other place to go. And uh, that made a big difference, I think, in the trials. I think it's great in so many ways. I mean, in the last few years, there's been these discussions of having a patient-centered medical home. And I think that's always what this was, that... Uh, the patients could come to one place and get their specialty care, get their primary care, and really um, feel like their doctors knew about their disease, knew them, um, had a lot of touch points with them, knew their families. Um, so I, I think it's a, a great model that you guys have built up over time and keep it going. And we were also, you know, very, uh, very particular about disease education. And we had these quizzes, the questionnaires uh, that we gave every annual, you know, and and they would be, some of them, of course, would be kind of embarrassed to take it. Like, it's like going to going to school and getting a test, you know, and uh, they were embarrassed if they got the same questions wrong every time, but they didn't. They got better. So we would keep the quizzes and show them how they compare from one visit to the next. And so that helped them also, you know, know that this is this is really working. So the quiz, as you know, the focuses on genetic genetics and then common 
common issues that are important also, how important it is to, to find out what the hemoglobin is, what the steady state hemoglobin level is, and what can happen when they get sick. So that quiz was a center of all the disease education that we did. So yeah, I would venture to say that our patients are quite well, uh, well informed about their disease because of that. And that was done at each annual visit, so that was good. Yeah, I think we're st we're still using the same quiz. <laughs> yeah, we really are. We really are. That's so fantastic. So, you know, one of the things I often wonder is, I mean, to, for you now, looking looking at where we are in 2021 with sickle cell disease, do you ever have moments where you're like, wow? I mean, is it just sometimes overwhelming in the fact that we have come such a long way from the starting point of sickle cell disease to now being at a point where we're talking about repairing, you know, a single nucleotide that causes, you know, the, the entire fuss. I mean, is that, do you sometimes get a chance to, I mean, day to day we're busy with everything, but sometimes do you get chances to contemplate over how far this field has come and how many changes you've seen arise under your watch? Yeah, I think the changes um, that, of course, most most striking are the ones that we have uh, instituted to improve care, right? But now we're looking beyond that. We're looking at cure, and we're looking at specific drugs that are able, that is just beyond outstanding and beyond exciting to have specific drugs that we can use to make an impact on the disease manifestations. And I never thought I'd live to see that. In fact, the very first patient that had a transplant, I kept his post-transplant hemoglobin evaluation in my office on my bulletin board for, for an inspiration. He had no S. He was all A. And that was the very first patient. And I never thought I'd live to see the day, actually, to see that happen. And that was very, very exciting. That was very exciting. And then, of course, it was hard to get him back for follow-up because he was too busy enjoying his life after that, you know. That's a good problem. Was, uh, that was the first cure here at Children's? Yes, that was the first cure, the transplant. Cheat Codes is brought to you today by Global Blood Therapeutics. GBT is a biopharmaceutical company committed to discovering, developing, and delivering life-changing treatments that provide hope to underserved patient communities, including sickle cell disease. GBT is grounded by a mission-driven culture and built with a team of experienced and passionate people committed to making a difference in the communities it serves. Cheat Codes is grateful to GBT for supporting today's episode and for serving the sickle cell community. So we've covered a lot of sickle cell, um, but I want to hear a little bit about the Olympics and soccer and uh, track. And because Dr. Sarnayak is a multiple medalist at the uh, at the Olympics and is in better shape than both of us combined. We don't <laughs> we don't make that too hard, but uh, she could beat us in a hundred yard dash for sure. Oh. Hey, at the sickle cell walk, she's always ahead of us and never out of breath. That's all I know. So when did when did you get into soccer and and track and uh, how do you how do you find time for that? Well, actually, you know, I used to do track when I was in um, college. You know, in um, in college, and I and I would run track. And uh, I, of course, after I got to medical school and came here, I, I never did anything. But then there was this uh, woman uh, who participated and she was exactly my age and she made it into uh, faces in, in the um, sports illustrated and I said 
oh, she's my age and she's found a place to participate. Maybe I should too. And that's how I got involved in that. And it was just really, really a lot of fun. Then did you beat that lady? No, I did not. Because <laughs> I don't know. I've seen pictures with multiple gold medals and silver medals. And... I think the only the only thing I beat her in was a, was a triple jump because I was really, I'm really, I can jump. I can <laughs> But she was faster track. So, but we were very friendly rivals. That's amazing. I, I, that's uh, always been something that I've admired you for, is that you have this passion. I mean, and you've turned your passion into something that you're so good at. And, and, and Mike's right. You're kind of like Michael Phelps. You have a collection of medals. And, and, and two-sport athlete, right? You're on the Olympic uh, soccer team, too. Yes. Well, actually, see, senior Olympics. Senior but, Olympics. Um, yeah, and I, uh, yeah, my speed, and, and I can play. I, I like to play a right wing in the soccer. Score some goals up there. Yes, yes. There's nothing more enjoyable than playing soccer, really. <laughs> Very few things, I would say. And, and now coaching your grandchildren in soccer, even. Yes, yes, yes. And they, they are very, they're pretty good, too, you know, because Ajit, I coached him first and then the grandkids after that. They got big shoes they to all, fill. They all, they had no choice. They had to play soccer. <laughs> There's no, no other way. I want to take it back to sickle cell for just a little bit. So obviously we have, uh, for, you know, for many years, there's been a problem with getting people to, when I say people, I mean medical students, trainees, to get excited about sickle cell disease, to want to take care of sickle cell disease patients. Through your journey, through your illustrious and decorated career, at this point, if you're talking, if you have a moment to talk to some of these younger folks that haven't decided what they want to do and they may be contemplating becoming a sickle cell physician, what would you tell them? You know, what I would tell them is probably during their rotations and taking care of patients with sickle cell disease on the floor, it may not be the easiest thing to take care of patients like that because they come in with pain and they're always in pain and it's always negative, negative, negative. But they have to look beyond that to look at how they deal with this chronic disease and how they gather the strength to take care of themselves and to take care of their pain. And once they get to know them, they would really be more, much more appreciative and would want to take care of them especially in the teenage years, you know, and uh, that is what's the inspiration, right? To kind of just make them so that they are better adjusted to pain. I love that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. We see that all the time. We see that the story inpatient and the story outpatient is very different. You're right. Yes. And sometimes some of them don't recognize patients when they see them on the outpatient from where they remember them being on the inpatient because they're so different when they don't have pain. They're so different. That That's no, that's just that's. I like that. Yeah, I think that that's very good advice. If you could go back as a young sickle cell physician and tell yourself something, what would you tell yourself? If you could talk to the 1978 version of you as a young sickle cell physician, what would you tell yourself? Yeah, it was very easy then to be discouraged, Amar, you know, at that time. And you didn't see light at the end of the tunnel. It was just like pain, pain, pain. And then you have to make these adjustments. But I would tell myself that you don't lose hope. You just keep on trekking and keep on supporting patients through bad times because you know there's going to be good times. And I would, I would never have thought that we could cure sickle cell, really, with the transplant. And, and you know, that's what should keep us going, right? It could, should keep us going. And now there are so many drugs also that we can do that make an impact on the, on the disease. 
it's awesome. Now, one more question for you. You know, I've in the short time that I've been part of this community, I've recognized that others, the, the community that's built with other sickle cell physicians is so important as we take care of patients. Tell us a little bit about how your sickle cell provider colleagues around the country, around the world, played a part in your career. Tell us about notable friends, partners that you've found through your journey in the sickle cell world, uh, who those people are that have been important to you as you've gone through this. And I, I have to say, I, I hear a lot of these stories. Wherever I go and I say I'm from Detroit, All the time. Say, oh, Dr. Sarnak, oh, I watched the you know, a soccer game at her house and, uh, you know, I had a broken <laughs> leg and uh, lots of, lots of good stories. Yeah. I think the, I think my mentor is Dr. Witten, you know, and he really inspired me. He's the one that had the biggest impact on my career and, and the reason I'm in sickle cell disease is Dr. Witten. But I think other colleagues too, you know, we share the same experiences and the same difficulties and hurdles taking care of patients with sickle cell disease, especially around pain management. And it's amazing how similar the stories are from one place to the next. It doesn't matter if you're in a warm place. I used to think, well, if you're in a warm place, you're not exposed to cold and you have less pain. No, that's not true. So I think we have a lot in common. And every time we meet at meetings, we exchange ideas and stories and, and how we can what we can do to make things better. I think that the biggest troubles nowadays are getting people to pay for the drugs that are available, believe it or not. I mean, that's a struggle that I know Amaru and Mike and uh, Dr. Shoni are involved with, making sure that, uh, like you always say, shame them into paying for it, you know? (laughs) I like that, but that does work, that does work. Yeah, we do do that, we do do that. Well, Dr. Sarnak, I just, I mean, I wanna take a chance to just say thank you. I mean, thank you for all of this. Uh, you built this and you've been here and you've really you've really made it easy for us to come in and take care of 800 patients here in Detroit. So for that, thank you. Really. Well, I have thank to say you. that I'm on like getting close to retirement now. I didn't want to say on the verge of, but I am getting close. And I think the program is Hopefully in excellent sure. hands with the two of you in I'm just so fortunate to have you guys here. You know, it's not easy to recruit, as you well know, patients and uh, physicians, providers into this field, but uh, it's in good hands. It's in good hands. Well, we uh, we love being able to, to have you at team meeting and run things by you and have you down the hall. So so thank you again. And um, so don't retire too soon. To, that's what I'm saying. We hope to take advantage of having you around for quite I some time. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys very much. All right, Dr. Sarnak, thank you again. Take care. Thanks again to our episode sponsor, Global Blood Therapeutics. Visit GBT.com to learn more about GBT's commitment to advancing the treatment and care of people affected by sickle cell disease. Dr. Callahan, it's moments like these that I feel an immense responsibility. You know, you talk to somebody like Dr. Sarnak and listen to her journey through these last sort of 40 years that she's been a physician in the sickle cell space. And I feel overcome with responsibility to continue that, right? To push forward in that direction, to continue to sort of chip away at this nasty disease called sickle cell disease. Do you feel that way? Oh, absolutely. You know, 
we're fortunate we work at this place that's got so much history and it's it's not the place you know the place is just a building the owners it's just a company but the people are what make children's hospital children's hospital and that goes back to tom cooley discovering thalassemia here or wolf zolzer discovering sc disease here or dr sarnayak figuring out that transfusions prevent recurrent strokes we are we are children's hospital of michigan absolutely and you know i i i feel uh honored to take up that legacy and and try to try to keep moving that forward um so it was great to talk to dr sarnayak today and, and hear a few of those sickle cell highlights over the years. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there's not much more that can be said, Dr. C. Uh, I'm just happy we were able to do this and then shine a little bit of light on, on what's been happening here in Detroit. Um, and I hope you warriors enjoy too. So if you know somebody who could benefit from hearing this podcast, share, like, subscribe, um, leave some reviews for us too. Let us know how we're doing. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to hear us, uh, you know, a couple times a month, and uh, we hope that you're enjoying the content we're putting out. With that being said, make sure you follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell. And me at Imagineer. And keep living well with Sickle Cell, Warriors. We'll talk to you later. Peace.